I love this season that God is taking us into. It's, uh, I'm not sure what it all is yet, but um, yes, yes, he is. But I was reminded, you know, there's, I'm always quoting Numbers uh, 23, 19, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie. But it also says in, in Titus chapter 1, it says, we have the hope of salvation, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. And then Hebrews 10, it says, there are two things that are, un that are unchangeable. The first being that it is impossible for God to lie. And so as we sing about promises and we sing about hope and we sing about overcoming fear, I think God allows us to encounter fearful circumstances just so we can rest on his promises or hopefully that we'll rest on his promises. And I'm reminded in um, Zephaniah, <clears throat> which I know is a book you guys read all the time, um, Another short prophetic book, and it's a, it's a prophetic book prophesying over Israel in the last days, and, and I believe over the, over the church too, because he talks about perhaps in the last days God will protect us from his wrath. Um, but it talks about those who choose not to walk in fear. It says the Lord rejoices over you with singing. And I was just thinking this morning, how many of us who are sitting here know that when we're declaring your promises never fail, you know, I, our God is an awesome God, that his response to that is not some stoic being sitting on a throne going, well, you should be singing that to me. You know, instead, he's rejoicing over what we're singing to him, and he is singing back to us with joy. And that's a powerful picture if you just sit and meditate and dwell upon that. So just to know that regardless of what you're going through, and even what Anissa shared about, I mean, we're talking this morning about the cross. You know, the cross is offensive to a lot of people because basically the cross says, I can't do it on my own. I have to trust something other than myself to walk out this life. And that's a great segue into what we're going to talk about today in Galatians chapter 3. And... Um, so if you have your notes in your Bibles, we're just going to jump right in. And um, I love, I love, love, love how Paul never pulls any punches. We, we, let me say we. When I say we, I mean I. I have a tendency when something firm needs to be said to kind of make it soft so it doesn't be too offensive because I don't want people not to like me and I don't want to come across too harsh. Paul is not like that. Paul jumps in verse 1, chapter 3 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? or by the hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? And so here we are. Paul, understand again, this entire letter is written to a bunch of churches, but he is trying to undo something that 
the people in the region of Galatia have embraced after Paul had preached them the first time. When they accepted Christ, they accepted Christ by faith, but along the way they picked up the teaching and began the practice that faith was not enough, that there were works that had to go along with faith in order for our salvation to be complete and sufficient. So Paul just confronts the Galatians head on with their inconsistencies and he call, tells them they're foolish. He says, you foolish, silly, or today, if you look at the original language, he would probably say stupid. You stupid Galatians, has somebody bewitched you? And he wants to show them because when he says, has someone bewitched you? Actually, that word means, has someone used magic to cast a spell upon you? In other words, you had the truth, I gave you the truth, you embraced the truth, and then suddenly somebody came along with a different teaching, actually a couple of different teachings. One, they taught that in order for you to be saved, you had to be a Jew, and the only way you could be a Jew is to be circumcised. And then they came along and said that if you're going to be a true Jew, a true Christian, you have to observe the feasts and the holidays. And, and so Paul's saying to the Galatians, what happened? What happened to you guys? You accepted by faith the work of the cross, and now all of a sudden you've added all this stuff onto it. And he's saying, I don't know how to explain it. Did somebody come and cast a spell on you? Did somebody come and bewitch you? Did someone come and say something over you to cause you to cast aside what I taught is truth and for you to pick up a lie and to carry this lie and tell everybody this lie is the gospel? And so he says, you know, it's, 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 it's as if they're hypnotized, they're irrational, they're out of touch with reality, they're actually mentally drunk. And I, and I want to make something clear here that... Don't ever think that people, um, don't forget that those of us who take the cross seriously, take the work of the cross seriously, we are not the delusional ones. We are not the ones who live in a dream world. The incarnation, which is Jesus as God becoming flesh and becoming human, his death, his resurrection, are all truth, and anything that, that is opposed to that is a fantasy. Any teaching that opposes the reality of, of God becoming man, putting on flesh and dwelling among us, that Jesus bore our sins, went to the cross, died for our sins, was buried, resurrected from the dead, ascended on high, any teaching that contradicts or is, is in opposition to that is a fantasy. It's not true. What we believe is true. The most deceptive belief in the world is, is really caused by secularism. This teaching that says the promotion of self, that I don't need God, that I am my own God, that I can, it's my life, I can live it like I want to live it, I can do what I want to do, that I control my destiny. That is the lie of all lies. It contradicts everything that you and I believe. It contradicts everything Scripture says. But here's the interesting thing. Even though the Galatians are bewitched, not my words, Paul's, are irrational, are acting like fools, out of touch reality, 
Paul still writes a reasonable, logical letter to try and break this spell, to try and break this, this lie that they've embraced. And now there are people who argue that if people are dead in their sins and blighted by the God of this age, there's no point in trying to reason with them because they're not chosen for God's sovereign plan. Paul doesn't see it that way here. Um, there does come a time, Jan and I had this interesting conversation this week, because we are, um, I guess perplexed would be a good word, but, but we are kind of at a crossroads on the homeless situation in Azusa. Because we want to, you know, Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was in prison and you visited me. So. We don't want to be hard and harsh and said, you've made your bed and sleep in it. But at the same time, our city and the county is trying to clean up the river because what they're doing along the riverbed affects the drinking water for all of the valley. And so part of it says we need to love them and feed them and help them. The other part of it says we need to stop enabling them so that they'll move. And um, this last, I think, yeah, last Wednesday um, in the evening, I, I walked outside and I'm going, there's a fire somewhere. I can smell it really strong. And um, one of the homeless people had started a fire to cook dinner and it's fire season. And the next thing you know, all the brush in the riverbed is on fire. And um, so my wife, who has the spiritual gift of curiosity, um, couldn't help herself. She got in her car and drove over there. And the police were there, but the firemen weren't there. And they said, we're just going to let it burn. Because if the brush burns, there's no place for them to hide their tents. So it's really a, a crossroad. It's really an enigma. The, the, we, we do have an intense homeless situation, particularly in California. And this message is not about that. But we talked about we are there every week feeding them and presenting the gospel, and they know the gospel. They know what the Word of God says, and they'll sit down, and you'll eat lunch with them, and they have an excuse for every bad choice in their life. They have an excuse for the situation they're in. And there comes a time where, you know, Jesus, when in, in uh, Mark chapter 10, he sends the disciples out in two since the 70s, and he tells them to go to the cities and to knock on the doors and to look for a man of peace. And he says, if you come to that door and they reject you and they don't invite you in, don't try and persuade them to let you in. Wipe the dust from your feet and move on to the next town. And so there does come a time where we have to say, you know what? I've either planted the seed or I've watered. Somebody else is going to have to come along and water some more and do some more harvesting because right now they're not ready. They're not ripe to receive. But there is a, there is a camp that says it's not that they're not ripe to receive. It's that they weren't chosen to receive. And because they're not chosen to receive salvation, then we just need to move on to somebody else. Paul doesn't see it that way. Paul is taking these people who have been bewitched and that they have changed their theology. They have added to what God has said is necessary for salvation. They have added works, works of Judaism that is brought upon them by the Judaizers, and also works that, that uh, Peter kind of portrayed to them. Remember in chapter 2, Paul 
kind of chastises Peter because Peter's the guy who had the vision that nothing that God has made is unclean, arise and eat. And now he's refusing to eat with Gentiles because it's not kosher food. And so there's all of this going on. And so we're at this point where, you know, some people say Paul should have just left the Galatians alone and moved on. But Paul's writing a very logical letter to them, not giving up on them, hoping that they can be shaken and to remember what it was that brought them to Jesus and that they'll return to the true gospel. There's only one gospel. And so, um, you know, that's what these whole six chapters are about, um, to, to awaken them. And so we can't let the unreasonableness of our acquaintances stop us from sharing the wealth of the gospel. As long as, and, and we've purpose in our heart, as long as there are homeless people, we will feed them, you know, and we will present the gospel to them. And so we need to make sure, Paul says this when he writes to Timothy, in humility correct those who are and that they, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil taken captive by him to do his will. So, in other words, if people receive correction or if people receive the truth, God grants them repentance and escape from the snare of the devil. And so Paul's at this crossroad with the Galatians. They have accepted a lie as truth and they have changed the gospel which in essence becomes no gospel at all. And they do so by contradicting the work of Jesus. And so Paul's main point in these five verses is just to help these people see how foolish they are. And there are times when people make dumb choices, and you just want to shake them, say, what are you doing? I've only encountered that a few times in my life where somebody's wanted to shake me. But people have a tendency to make choices based upon what's most convenient for them and what's easiest to deal with. And the truth of the matter is this. It is much easier for many people to think salvation requires them to do something as opposed to accepting something that's already been done through the cross. And basically what the cross says to, to all people is that there is nothing you can do. You are insufficient in all of your endeavors to achieve a relationship with God. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. The only way you can come to God is through the cross where you admit, I am totally inadequate to do anything to earn my salvation. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do. There's no place I can go. That I, it, is, it is based upon faith and faith alone. And so Paul's argument here in these verses is, did you guys receive salvation by the work of the law? Or did you receive salvation by the work of the Spirit? You can't have salvation with both. It's either you earned it or Jesus paid for it. There, you can't have both. And so he begins this process. And so he gives them two reasons for the dilemma. Number one is that they are contradicting the work of the cross by saying there's something else they have to do to make their salvation complete. Remember, the Judaizers are saying 
salvation can only, true salvation can only come to Jews. So if Gentiles accept the work of the cross, we need to make them Jews. And so all the men need to be circumcised. And they also said they need to observe the feast. They need to keep the law. They need to, uh, you know, do all, our, all of our holidays. The other thing is saying they are contradicting the work that the Holy Spirit did in their life. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the Bible's clear. The only way you and I are able to love God is by the Holy Spirit pouring love into our hearts. The Bible says it's the Spirit who poured love into our hearts, and that love that we feel for God compels us to examine our own heart, to see our weakness, and to come to God because He loved us first. The Holy Spirit pours God's love into our heart, and we're able to love God back. It's almost like God loving God. God within us causes us to love Him and have fellowship with Him. And so that's why Paul's saying, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So the death of, the, of Christ for our sins shows how hopelessly we were lost. Just think with me for a moment. God could have done any number of things to make a way for you and I to have a relationship with him far gone, we had so embraced the work of the flesh that there was no sacrifice sufficient on earth that could ever take care of all the sins we've done and all the sins we will do. So in order to do that, God said there's only one ultimate sacrifice that is sufficient for every sin ever committed and every sin that ever will be committed. And because of that, because of your sin and my sin, God said, there's only one thing I can do, and that is allow my son to be the sacrifice. It shows that there is nothing. We can't make any contribution whatsoever for our salvation. There is nothing you can do. Everything about salvation is based upon what Jesus has already done and based upon us accepting it by faith. And we accept it by faith when the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our heart and we are confronted with our own worthlessness, our own weakness, our own inability. And it's at that moment that we come to the recognition that we need a Savior because we are hopelessly lost. There is nothing we could ever think, say, or do that would do enough to make salvation available to us. And so the, the stumbling block of the cross, the thing that makes the cross so offensive is that if you accept the cross, you are saying, I am helpless. I am totally unable to do anything to bring about salvation into my own life. And so, you know, it's, this is what Paul says. He says it a couple of times. But when first when he writes to the Romans, he says, You receive the spirit of sonship when we cry, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the assurance that we feel that God is our Father and that we are heirs with the glory of Christ. He says when he writes to the Corinthians, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's saying all this because this is what the Galatians have come to. They have said the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the revelation the Spirit has put in our heart of who Jesus is, 
that the Galatians have said it wasn't enough, that they needed the law, they needed works to help them make certain they were saved. And so some were brought to this place in Matthew. It's one of those, and it's, it's, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's one of those passages that just makes you pause and think and go, as much as I understand, I don't understand much. Because Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so there is this point, a moint is a moment and a point together. There is this point, this moment in our life where we have to totally surrender to our own helplessness. We have to say to ourselves, I am insufficient to accomplish what needs to be done in my life. I can't work hard enough. I can't be good enough. I can't do enough good deeds to somehow merit God's favor in my life. And that's the whole purpose of grace. See, mercy is, is showing us favor when we deserve punishment. Grace is giving us mercy that we don't deserve. It's unmerited. There's nothing we can do to earn this grace. And so when we come to the cross, when we come to Jesus by faith, we have to come totally, completely abandoned to any thought we have that somehow we can merit his love and his favor. That's, that's the big lie, as, as I've had discussions with our Buddhist monk over here on Cerritos, that's the biggest lie he's embraced, and that there is no God, that he is his own God, and that if he works hard enough and believes hard enough and does enough good things, he can achieve a level of nirvana. And he's with his own mouth. You know, I, I said to him, you know what? The moment you say there is no God, you become God. You become your own God. And he said, no, that's not true. I'm not a God. You're not a God. There is no God. He said, there is only our inner person achieving the goals that we want to achieve. And most people aren't Buddhists, but most sinners who refuse to accept Jesus have not come to the point of salvation actually live that kind of life. They become their own God. They believe that they can be the master of their own destiny. And that is such a lie from the pit of hell. And so um, the, these evidences, that these three evidences that um, we have the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, the first one is... Um, the Galatians could point to miracles that God was doing by the Spirit in their midst. And Paul says, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? So he said, and obviously the Galatians had seen miracles. He said, so think with you for a moment. Did the law cause those miracles to happen? 
or did the faith of the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit cause those to happen? Healings, exorcisms, all of those things they experienced were by the Spirit. Also, this deep assurance that God is their Father. I already read this part that twice Paul says, because of the fatherhood of God, we by the Spirit who lives within us are able to say, Abba, Father. Abba meaning Daddy. That there is this intimacy that we can only know with God by the revelation of the Holy Spirit in our heart. And finally, the, the, the great evidence is this genuine impulse of love. To love people that are unlovable. To love people that um, if we were just operating in the flesh as human beings, they say, well, you don't deserve love. You don't deserve love, but you do. And you do. But to love everybody. And Jesus encompasses it when he says, love your enemies. You know, I mean, love those who persecute you. Love those who lie about you. Love those who do all kinds of evil against you falsely because you bear my name. And that, you are only able to do that by the Spirit living and dwelling within you. You cannot do it by the law. When the disciples, well, not the disciples, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, okay, what's the greatest of the commandments? And it says they're actually lawyers who asked him this question. And they asked him this question because they wanted to trap him. And Jesus said, it's very simple. That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus recognizing that if we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the outcome of that is loving anyone who needs to be loved. And he told the parable of the neighbor. And the neighbor in the parable is the one type of person the Jews rejected, Samaritans. They, they, they wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. And Jesus says, well, that's your neighbor. That's the person you're supposed to love as you love yourself. And so how is the Spirit received? He says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So, and here's his argument. Just, and so this is Paul's logical argument. And I'm just going to read this out of the notes. When he was the Christ. So the streets, he reasoned with them from Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So first of all, he took them to the Old Testament to show them that Jesus was Messiah. Um, I, I have this great book that takes you through every chapter of the Old Testament and shows you where Jesus is from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. Jesus is in every chapter of the Old Testament. So it was easy for Paul to sit them down and to show them Jesus with Old Testament scripture. And so he says, and you know, he says, I took you through the Old Testament. I showed you who Jesus was. You know, I showed you that you're sinners. I showed you Jesus died for your sins. I showed you that he rose again. I emphasize that anyone who trusts Jesus can have forgiveness and hope. And when you heard this message, faith happened. At that moment, faith happened. You didn't plan it, and I didn't force it upon you. The Holy Spirit poured something into your heart, and all of a sudden you recognized you were a sinner in need of a Savior. And so and it, came, it, it came upon them just like turning a light on in a dark room. Bam, it just showed up. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And with it, you know, whether wherever they were in front of it or behind it, they knew the Spirit had come. And he says, and when that happened in your heart, all of a sudden, by that Spirit, you could cry, Abba. You could identify with God as your Father. 
You didn't do anything. You didn't work any work to try and make that happen. It happened by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. It happened by the Word of God, which says, Jesus says, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Because what happens is the Word of God cuts away all your defenses. That's what that means. The Word of God cuts away any argument anyone has in the need of a Savior. It, it cuts away any argument to the fact there is no God. The Word of God dispels all those arguments. And the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ drives out the darkness of unbelief from our hearts, and we accept Christ as Savior. So he reminded them that they were just like little kids, hopeless, helpless, and the revelation the Holy Spirit put in their heart, they had by faith showed up, and they accepted the work of Jesus. In James 1.18, it says this, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so we have this, this, this great caution, though. And Paul shows the Galatians why their actions contradict the work of the Spirit in their lives. Paul tells them you have to go back to the way you began. And the, the clear implication is this. You, you can't go back and somehow earn something that's already been given to you. Let me say that again. You can't go back and try and merit something you've already received by grace, something that's already been given to you. It's impossible. If you try, you're going to have a shipwreck of a Christian life. Going back and trying to somehow merit what God has given you freely and, and, and given you without um, any cost on our part except to believe what Jesus did. And so we have to be very clear about what the Galatians were about to do here so we can avoid it. There are ways, I talked a couple weeks ago about God has laid a train track down for our life. It's called our destiny, our purpose. And as we ride that train, the track will take us where God wants us to go. And sometimes it goes into dark places we don't necessarily want to go. It takes us into places of doubt. It takes us into places of insecurity. It takes us into places to where we are totally helpless and our only hope is to hold on to Him. And that's where he wants us to go because it's in that place of helplessness that we have to make a choice. Either I'm going to try and dig my way out or I'm going to trust him and ride this train and let him take me out. And too many people, when they get to that dark place, where they get to the, the place where the train starts to go into darkness, they take the train track and they're through what God's taking them through. And they try to climb out of what they're getting into instead of riding through what God's taking them through. And that's what the Galatians were doing. God had, by accepting the work of the cross, by accepting what the Spirit poured in their hearts, they had accepted to get on this journey, this train called faith, and to ride the train of faith. But all of a sudden, somebody came along and said, sorry, you can't ride the train. You've got to climb. And so they took the train tracks and made a ladder, and they tried to climb up to heaven to somehow earn God's favor and somehow earn God's merit, to somehow do something right to make their salvation complete. And Paul says, you guys are idiots. You guys are fools. Somebody cast a spell on you, and now you've accepted this crazy lie that says that which is already freely given to you, now you've got to find a way to earn it. Now you've got to try and find a way to make it happen. And so he says this. Is it, was it the, the spirit or the flesh? Verses 2 and 3. This only, I, I love the way he says this. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? 
Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So this contrast between verse 2 and, and 3, you know, it's, it's talking about this flesh. And the flesh is not, we're not talking about physical here. We're not talking that which bleeds and all that. We're talking about this independence that we have of self-assertion, of choosing our own destiny. I am my own captain. You know, it's, and this is what Paul says when he writes to the Romans, the mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, the works that we try and do is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Flesh is so in love with its self-determination that it doesn't, it cannot submit to God's absolute authority. But we can't, we can't look at the flesh as um, something wicked because in its irreligious form, flesh always flaunts insubordination toward God by immorality, um, by idolatry, by envy, by lust, whatever you want to put there, by lack of faith, by somehow thinking, I'm in this dark place, and now I've got to figure out a way to work myself out of it. That's, that's what irreligious does. But there's also a religious form that very subtly takes self-determination and uses that instead of faith and trust. And it, what happens is it manifests in a philosophy of Christianity, which encourages people to try and work their way out of a situation as opposed to trusting God to carry them through the situation. I know we're all there. That's why I felt this morning in worship. I love the fact, you know, I spend, I don't know how many hours I spend studying, doesn't matter. But on Thursday, Emily told me the songs that she already had in her heart for today. I mean, the list was already together. The God that she spent time before the Lord asking the Lord, what are you going to do on Sunday? And she's asking him in the middle of the week. She didn't sit down and say, what are my favorite songs? What really sounds good? What's the best key for my voice? You know, what kind of gets in the groove? And none of that. God, what are you saying to us? What do you want to do? And God wants to say something to all of us, and we need to receive it today that he doesn't want us to live our life in fear. He wants us to live our life in Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, to know that he will never, ever, 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 ever leave us or forsake us. He, he is never, you know, he's, he's not this, this big being that picks us up high enough just so he can drop us like a yo-yo and just before we hit the ground, he jerks us up again and drops us again. But doesn't want us to figure it out on our own. God wants us to believe what he says. And that's what this whole, and that's what those songs are about. That's what this journey is about. And that's what the Galatians forgot. They took the promises of God and they said they are not enough. We have to add on to them. There's something we have to do in order to make this promise be fully evident in our life. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to become Jews. Because that's the only way our salvation is going to be real. And we, while we don't say, you know, <clears throat> I know it's Jewish people, and believe me, they're not that cool. Um, I will say this, though. This is just a side note. I, I know the Jewish look, too. Um, 
there are a lot of great um, TV programs and movies that come out of Israel that even though they're based in the Old Testament, they are so full of faith and trusting God. And it's just, we watched one last night, it was all in Hebrew. If you watch them out of Israel, they're in Hebrew, so you have to read subtitles. And it's just, it's about a, a Jewish woman who gets engaged, and if you know the whole process, and so she and her fiance are, are meeting with the wedding planner to choose what meat they're going to have and how many people are going to be there. And all of a sudden, she says, there's something wrong. What's wrong? And he goes, okay, I don't love you. So everything ends right there. But she says this, I trust God. I believe God can bring me a husband. So I'm going to go ahead and keep the date and rent the hall and buy the food and God's going to bring me a groom. And the whole movie is about how everybody thinks she's crazy, but she keeps saying, am I crazy or is God crazy? What are you saying? Am I or is God? If, if, why wouldn't God want me to get married? He tells me to get married. Why wouldn't he want me to have a husband? He tells me to have a husband. He tells us to be fruitful and multiply. And so she goes through the whole thing, and her wedding day, everybody thinks she's crazy, and she's there sitting in her white gown waiting for her husband to show up, which I'll, it's called the wedding plan. You can watch it on Amazon Prime, and you can find out if she gets a husband or not. But the story is this woman who doesn't know Jesus but would not allow her faith in God to be daunted by her mom or her sisters or her best friend, who happens to end up marrying the guy that didn't love her. You know, it's those, those types of things happening. And so, you know, we need to know that there is, there is this subtlety that has integrated itself into the church, into our Christianity that has become religious, that has said we can help God work things out. We can help God along to get this done faster. And my argument with God always is he doesn't have a calendar or a watch. And so he never shows up on the day I think he's going to show up or the time I think he's going to show up. He just shows up when's best for me. Um, and he doesn't tell me what time is best for me. He makes me wait to find out what time is best for me. So verse 3 isn't directed for those um, who are yet to start a Christian life. It's written for those who already had faith. So he's not writing to Galatians who haven't been saved. He's writing to Galatians who have already accepted Christ as their Savior. Those who are in danger of trying to live the Christian life in a way that nullifies grace and leads to destruction. Those who, um, you know, in other words, the Paul's point is you can't start your faith, your life in Christ one way and try and finish it another way. You can't come to Christ by faith and then pick up the tools and try and finish it in your own efforts according to man's ways. It's either which somebody has cast a spell on you that I'm here to, to break. And he kind of mocks him. He says, I'm really curious. I want you to teach me. Tell me how you figured this out that you can get saved by faith and then you have to work it to earn it. So he kind of mocks him. He says, that, but he does that to help them understand how foolish they are, how they have, 
how they have chosen to listen to people who followed after Paul. You know, Paul's already been there. He's already preached. He's already established the church. He's gone on in his missionary journeys. And others have followed after him who said, by the way, if you remember, they just didn't come in and say, hey, listen to us. They came and said, James, the brother of Jesus, sent us. And so we have authority. And we're here to tell you that Paul and Peter are not telling you the right thing. And so our modern heresy is this. There's one phrase that I detest, so don't ever say it around me. God helps those who help themselves. That is heresy. That is not what the Bible says. If anybody ever says that to you, just say liar. Or you can quote Paul. Oh, you foolish Christian, who has bewitched you? That is not true. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who trust in him, period, who believes his promises. If you buy into that as a way of advancing Christian life, then you are just like the Galatians. You've put works before faith. You've said, there's something I can do to make this thing work out. You know, faith, it's... And, and you guys know our story, but I just remind you, when, when the Lord told us almost 15 years ago that we weren't to take a salary anymore and we weren't to write support letters, there are times literally when I've said, okay, we're just going to have to dig through the pantry, eat what we have. We have 97 cents in the bank. Thank God we've, we have never overdrawn in 15 years. You know, but we have gotten down to pennies. And we just simply pray and we say, okay, God, we're here because this is where you brought us. We trust you. You are going to do what you're going to do. And we have seen, and, and again, this is why I say he doesn't have a watch and he doesn't have a calendar. And he doesn't like bank accounts. Because if he did, he'd make sure my savings always had enough there for me to fall back on. But it doesn't. I only have him to fall back on. We only have him to trust. But we have never, ever, ever, he made a promise to us, you would never miss a payment, you would never miss a meal, and you would never be without anything that you need. And he has kept that word to us this entire 15 years. We've never missed a payment. We've never missed a meal, as you can tell. And, you know, anything we've needed has always come through. And it's not necessarily by our own hands. And I've told you stories before, I won't repeat now, but he always comes through, through people, but it comes through because we trust in him. We're not out calling people. We're not out writing letters. We're not out trying to drum it up. We're not dropping hints saying, boy, we sure could use this or this or this. We only go to him and we trust him. And there are times when, when we thought we were desperate, all of a sudden we're more desperate. But he has never, ever, 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 ever not kept his word. Every promise in this is about every promise in God, every promise in Jesus is yes and amen. Every promise. Not some of them, not half of them, not only the prosperity ones. Every promise. Which, by the way, just a side note, and I know we're over a little, but worship went too long. Did, did anybody, not too long, I, let me rephrase that. Worship went perfect time, I'm just going to go too long. How's that? Uh, he has totally repented of the prosperity gospel. He said it was sin. He repented. He said, I am never going to receive an offering again. And he's selling every property he has but one. And he's been the rest of his life just preaching the gospel and salvation. 
and it's only about people needing Jesus. Now that, that that's a huge, a huge transformation for a, for a man of who I haven't agreed with on a lot of things to stand up and say, the prosperity gospel is sin, and I repent. I have been the biggest of the sinners. I mean, it's an incredible article. But anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. So I throw it out there because. When you are asking for money all the time, you don't need to trust God. You know, what you're trusting is offerings. You're looking for offerings to come in. So our modern heresy is that we believe that if we, we, we need to help God, help us. We need to do things. So, so flesh is the ego in which religious people respond to God's word not with reliance of the spirit, but reliance on ourself. And it can produce a very rigorous morality but it nullifies grace and removes the stumbling block of the cross. And so here's, here's how all this wraps up. The essential mark of a Christian is not how far we progress in sanctification, but on what we rely to get there. Let that sink in for a moment. The measure of our life is not how far we've gone, but how we've gotten there. And if it's self-sanctification, all of a sudden we become very aware of how little we've trusted God and how much we've trusted ourselves. So we have to be careful not to strive for sanctification by our own works, by our own deeds. You know, are you trying to prove your worth to God by what you do? Are you trying to prove your worth to God by pressing through? I've got to read the entire Bible this year. And if that's the thing God told you, that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying, I do know people who have said, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to make it. Like, so what? So what? Your house isn't going to fall in. The roof isn't going to cave in. And God's still going to love you, period. You know, but we have this thing. Or I haven't prayed enough today. Or I haven't done this. Or da, 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 da. But, you know, are we, and what happens is you end up walking in condemnation. It's, it's a self-condemnation. And, and Jesus makes it really clear in the book of John. You know, and he makes it, Paul makes it clear. Paul says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But Jesus said, God didn't send me to condemn the world. In John 3, he said he sent me so that the world could be saved. And so if we're walking in condemnation after we're saved, understand this. We are walking in condemnation because we've put it upon ourselves. We have picked it up. We have set the measurement of works over the work of the Spirit and said, because I'm not measuring up to the works that I think are necessary, we have picked up self-condemnation. We have heaped it upon ourselves, And that's where the enemy wants us because he knows once we are in the place of self-condemnation, we don't feel worthy enough to come to Jesus and say, I blew it. I'm sorry. I can't fix this. You're my only hope. The more he can keep us dependent upon ourselves and shame us into our um, lack of ability to accomplish what we set out to do, the more he can keep us in prayerlessness, in devotionlessness, and in wandering instead of just coming and sitting still and being quiet before the Lord. That's what it means to be sanctified by faith, to trust God, to believe God for everything that we encounter in our life. And, and 
never forget this, ever. Love is the key to everything, period. Love, there is no problem that you're encountering that does not require love to bring it to fruition. If it's not you loving somebody, it's believing that God loves you enough to walk you through it. First, before we ever knew him, always, always about love. That God loved us first before we ever knew him, before we ever accepted Jesus, before we ever had the Holy Spirit reveal to us the depth of his love, he loved us. 1 John 4, 10 and 11, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, to sum up verses 1 through 5, you're not sitting in these chairs today because of anything you did in your flesh. You're here today because of the revelation the Holy Spirit placed in your heart because you accepted the work of the cross and you walk in the fullness of the sufficiency of all that Jesus did knowing that it was done. There's nothing more you can do. And if you're struggling with any of that, here's what you need to do. Repent. Tell God you're sorry. Tell God that you trust him as much as you can. Remember when Jesus encounters Peter on the beach, after Peter denied him three times in front of a charcoal fire, Peter's the one that jumps off the boat when he realizes it's Jesus on the shore. He gets there first, and the first thing he's confronted with is a charcoal fire, which are very rare. So charcoal fire takes him right to the place where Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. There in front of a charcoal fire, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Peter finally says, look it, this is it. You know I love you as best I can. And Jesus says, that's all I want you to realize, Peter. I don't want you to beat yourself up because you denied me. I want you to feed my sheep because you love me. And with as much love as you have in your heart, whatever, however you measure that, that's enough. Now go and feed my sheep. And whatever place you're in right now, don't beat yourself up for what you're, where you're not. Embrace and accept yourself for where you are because that's where God has you. Trust him in the midst of it to walk you through it, not around it or over it, but through it, knowing that God is not a man that he should lie. God, it is impossible for God to lie. Every promise in Jesus is yes and amen, which means so be it, and we're done. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you loved us first. We thank you, God, that when the Holy Spirit poured that revelation of your love into our hearts, we said yes. And we thank you, God, that as we walk out this journey, that we recognize that we are flesh trying to live as spiritual and God, more often than not, the flesh gets in the way. But your grace is sufficient for us and that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Father, we stand before you even now saying, we love you as best we know how. And we covenant with you to, to ride the train that you've set before us to fulfill the purpose and destiny you have for our life, recognizing this, that we may not understand where we are today, 
but there'll come a day where we'll be able to use this moment to help somebody else on their journey. And so, God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the cross, for its total, complete sufficiency in our salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.